I'd invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, to Mark chapter 8. Our scripture passage this morning is verses 22 through 26. We're taking these five uh, verses, which is the next passage, as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, reading from the English Standard Version translation. (laughs) Oh, those Bibles on our uh, (laughs) smartphones, right? (laughs) And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your presence and help and ministry by your Holy Spirit. And this is not just a a ritual prayer we pray before the message each Sunday. It is a genuine request born out of the recognition that the natural man does not perceive the things of the Spirit but only those whom you have regenerated and in whom your spirit fully works to illuminate our minds and our hearts to understand what the scriptures actually say to us. Father, we need this ministry. Uh, We need it because um, like the disciples whose lives we are looking at, even as we look at the ministry of Christ, we recognize that often seeing we do not see, often hearing we do not hear. And often Jesus might say to us, do you not yet understand? And we recognize, Father, that our progress in the Christian life is at sometimes seemingly incremental. Sometimes it seems we are at a status quo. Sometimes it seems like we are even in retrograde motion. And yet we know that if we faithfully pray, if we faithfully seek the work of your Spirit in our hearts and lives and faithfully apply ourselves to your Word, Uh, that you will uh, keep working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. For that we are grateful. And so we pray this morning, open up our hearts and our minds, open up our understanding to the marvelous things that come out of your law. And in all of this, grace, we pray, in order to give Jesus all glory in our lives. In his name, amen. The Apostle Peter has been called the Apostle of Reminders because of something he has written in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. So let me read what Peter says there. Therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, 
when we remind ourselves that the Apostle Peter stands behind the Gospel of Mark, uh, we can see something of the Apostle's ministry of reminding also in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, This occurs because uh, we see repeated patterns and repeated themes and repeated ideas and repeated lessons that are presented in all the things which Jesus says and all the things which Jesus himself does. And the reason behind repetition, as every instructor knows, is that it is through repetition and repetition and repetition that we actually begin to take and, and, and really begin to understand the things that we were being taught. And as this is so for all sorts of academic kinds of subject matter, as it is so for the experiences of life, so it is so with respect to spiritual matters. It's necessary that we have the truths of the gospel repeated to us again and again. It is necessary that we have the truths of what it means to live for Jesus repeated to us again and again and again in order for us to grow as we're supposed to go. Now, there's one pattern uh, in this repetition of patterns that is of the highest kind of importance as we read through the Gospels. We've mentioned this before. It has to do with the pattern of analogy, the pattern of analogy which we see in terms of what Jesus does physically and what Jesus does spiritually. Uh, early on in the Gospel, Mark chapter Jesus heals a paralytic. And if you recall the story, this is the fellow who is lowered down through the roof by four of his friends. And as he's there lying upon the pallet with the Pharisees as Jesus' enemies already around him in the crowd of people, Jesus says to this man, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the, the, the four friends bring the man to have his sins forgiven. They brought him because he had the obvious uh, handicap of being a paralytic. They physically. But Christ speaks to a spiritual need, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Remember, the Pharisees challenge him in their hearts, saying, How does this man say such things? He's blaspheming. God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, responding to what's going on in their hearts, says something like this. In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority upon earth to forgive sins, I say to you, and he speaks to the paralytic, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. Now, the point is, is that Jesus' ability to do things in the physical realm were always analogous of authenticating of what Jesus could do in the spiritual realm. And physical ailments and afflictions and handicaps, which are part and parcel of the human predicament, have their spiritual analog in the fact that our lives are spiritual. And we have our spiritual handicaps. And we have the things that are spiritually ailing and need to be fixed and healed and ultimately wrapped up in the concept of what it means to be saved. That pattern we find all through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to find it again in the story that we read today. We are to recognize that these physical ailments and the healing of Christ speaks to the greater ailments that human beings have our brokenness by sin, and what Jesus has done because of his work for us on the cross. Now, we come to this story. This story has a couple of unique uh, factors about it. It's the, Mark himself is the only one who tells this healing story of this particular blind man. 
But in this story, we also see uh, repeated patterns and repeated lessons from things we've looked at and heard, learned before. But what's interesting about this passage, what's interesting here, besides it being the only, this Mark being the only one who tells the story, is the fact there's something very unusual in this story, something that stands out, something that actually breaks the pattern. And the, and the pattern that's broken in terms of this healing story is this. Jesus heals this man, but he isn't healed all at once. The pattern's broken. And that's what causes us to focus in upon this story in a particular way. Jesus breaks his own pattern. The question is why? What do we learn from this change of pattern in the normal pattern of how Jesus has been healing? That's the center of this story. It's the question that the readers of Mark must have been asking. It's the kind of thing that ought to strike us if we've been reading the Gospel of Mark closely. This is unique. This is not the way the other things are. What does this mean in terms of why Jesus acted this way? And you also note that Jesus doesn't explain it. Which means a question is asked Jesus doesn't explain it, which means that it is our responsibility to do everything we can to understand what is the answer to this question. And if we stay within the boundaries of Scripture, and if we stay within the things that we have learned through this gospel, and if we stay within the things Scripture teaches in a normative fashion, we can come to an awfully strong conviction that we have an answer as to what is really going on in this passage. Now, the best way to, to go through this is simply to uh, follow the pattern that Mark gives us in terms of verse by verse by verse, different elements that we find there. And there are five particular things that we're going to look at. Uh, four of these are repeated patterns. And, of course, the one that isn't a repeated pattern is the one that breaks the pattern. And that provides the five elements. So we begin with verse 22. The, the first repeated pattern is this. Concerned people... Bring a needy friend to Jesus. Now, we've seen this a number of times in Mark's gospel. And, and the lesson we have learned is this, that family members and friends bring a needy person to Jesus and beg of Jesus to heal that person. All sorts of people who out of their own inabilities, can't come to Jesus, family members or friends are bringing them to Jesus. We find that story here. Now, in Jesus' day, people who may not have believed in Jesus in a saving way, that is, we can't really count that their faith was necessarily a genuine saving faith, nevertheless, had such conviction that Jesus was a good man and such conviction that Jesus could heal people that they were bringing people to Jesus with that kind of faith, with that kind of rock-solid conviction, Jesus can do something. And so when they come, they don't say, Hey, uh, Jesus, uh, we know you've done this sometimes, but uh, is it possible that you might do it now? 
again and again, we've read in the stories that they bring someone to Jesus and they beg Jesus. Jesus, it's heal this person. Jesus, heal my daughter. Jesus, heal our friend. And you notice in this passage, in verse 22, as we begin into verse 23 as well, that they come, verse 22, and they beg him to touch him. Now, there's a lesson here. We need to remember at all times as Christians that we have family members and we have friends and we have co-workers. We have people who are spiritually unable to come to Jesus on their own. In fact, we know that to be true of every unsaved person. If Jesus is so willing to do something on behalf of a faith that's not necessarily saving faith and a physical healing that is not necessarily going to be eternal salvation, if Jesus is so willing to operate in in the world in that way during his day when he was here in this world, willing to do it because of the deeper spiritual lessons it was pointing to, then, then why shouldn't we be far more faithful in praying for our unsaved grandchildren, unsaved siblings, unsaved unsaved co-workers and people we know? Now, we're not saying that prayer binds the hands of God. But what we're saying here is that the life of Jesus, the lessons we learn, would give us strong encouragement We ought to be faithful in prayer for people who will never on their own come to Jesus. We ought to be more faithful in prayer. Now, that's a repeated story. And so it's a repeated lesson. And obviously, Mark is selecting these things out of the many, many, many things that Jesus has done to drive this home to the Christians at Rome. You must pray for those who don't know Christ. Second repeated pattern we find in verse 23a, and this is how Jesus ministers. So the first half of verse 23, we see Jesus taking the man by his hand, indicative of that personal touch, and then leading him outside of the village. No crowds where it's just going to be the friends and the disciples. Leading him from the in order to give to this man personal, individual attention. And we see this as the manner and methodology of Jesus again and again. We find in the ministry of Christ this high-touch kind of situation where he's physically involved with people as well as the fact that he wants to remove them from everyone else so that they recognize that Christ is giving them his undivided attention. Now, we recognize this because, look, this blind fellow had friends who were already leading him by the hand, so to speak. And Jesus could have said, hey, fellas, just uh, uh, yeah, grab the guy's hand and, and we're going to step outside of the village here away from people. Jesus could have done that in a less personal way. But Mark is careful to point out that here's the man Jesus and he takes this man by the hand and leads him outside of the village. Jesus acts with compassion and love, and in his incarnation fully understood exactly what we need as human beings. We need the personal touch. Christians need that from each other. 
We all need that from our Savior. Now, what I see in here is that Jesus is also making it clear to the blind man this this factor of undivided attention. He's blind. He can't see whether Jesus is looking around, right? Uh, He can't see whether Jesus is, you know, uh, walking along, pulls out a smartphone. Uh, I'm going to check this text real fast before we get outside the village. And, and I, you laugh, but don't you see people operating this way all of the time? When, in, in our culture today, do the people we spend time with get our undivided attention? Especially thinking about younger people. But it affects all of us. When do we involve ourselves with other people that we do not have divided attention in some way, somehow? All the studies are indicating this is the direction that our culture is going. That as we have the invasion of social media, we have people who think they're more widely connected because actually I have 15,000 friends on my Facebook account. Uh, They think they're more widely connected with all sorts of human beings and the analysis is they are, in fact, less and less and less connected. Very few people now get undivided attention from another human being. Jesus, taking the blind man's hand, walking him outside the village, gave him undivided attention. We need that confidence that when we go into our time of prayer, that the God of all the universe, who has a gazillion different things, that's a big number, a gazillion different things on his mind all of the time, nevertheless, in infinite wisdom and the infinite nature of his abilities can give us undivided attention. What we can't do. God can multitask. We can't. Trump can't. I just read that today that they said Trump can multitask. No, no. We can only do one thing well at a time. God gives us his personal attention as if we were the only other creature in all of his created world. No one ever... No one ever, no one ever, ever does that with us. So shouldn't we take advantage of what Jesus does with us more and more? Here is the one person who will focus infinite attention upon me when I bring my heart and all of its issues before him. It's an encouragement for us to spend more time with Jesus. The third repeated pattern is in the second half of verse 23. It's in the manner of how Jesus healed. Uh, The use of certain means to work his power. Now, uh, if you note what goes on in verse 23, you'll recall that back when we were in chapter 7 and Jesus heals the man who is uh, deaf and whose speech impediment is so strong that he's also described as being mute. How Jesus actually did two things. 
he spat and then used his saliva on the man's tongue and he used his hands to touch him. Now, um, Damien, this does not mean that your mom is going to approve of you spitting. <laughs> we live in a culture where spitting is normally considered to be... I saw you looking up at your mom. I saw that. I thought, oh, there's some communication going on there. But we live in a culture where spitting is not considered... It really isn't. Uh, and, and in Jesus' day, spitting was also considered to be very offensive, especially if you spit on somebody. Jesus is breaking a lot of cultural norms. Jesus is breaking a lot of things that are happening in his culture of that day for, for reasons that were needed and necessary. But here he uses his saliva as a means to present his healing. Saliva and his personal touch. But he's also doing that in this passage. He also used those two things in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, you have the man who's born blind. And Jesus spits on the ground, creates mud and clay, anoints the man's eyes, and tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when the man does, he sees. So we have a kind of pattern that we find in the, in the, in the healing of Jesus. Now, the lesson we find here is this. Jesus customarily uses means. Does he need to? The Gospel of Mark has presented a Christ who is able to heal with just a word. Some of the earlier miracles were that way. The Gospel has presented a Christ who has power over the demonic. He has commanded, he's spoken, and they've left. We find the Lord Jesus in a boat, sound asleep, Raging wind, raging wind. The disciples wake Jesus up, fearful they're going to perish. Christ stands and commands the wind and the waves to stop, to cease. Everything goes quiet. So we have a Lord Jesus who can absolutely, because of his speech, accomplish things. Reminds us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where it describes the Son of God as the one who upholds the entire created cosmos by the word of his power. Jesus has this ability to do anything simply by speaking and willing it, yet he's also then chosen to do so many things in this world through what we would call ordinary means. Let me explain that a little bit. When Jesus came in and started his ministry in Galilee, did he not, through his ability to know all things, could he not have said to the Father, uh, put on my heart and mind every sick person in all of Galilee, in all this region, and I'll speak the word and all of them will be healed. Uh, Jesus could say, Father, uh, put upon my heart the names and lives of all those who are afflicted with demons throughout all of Galilee. And also, maybe there's someone up there in, in the Syrophoenicia area that has an affliction as well because of the woman with the, the child. Just, just put it on my heart. I'll just take care of it all at once. 
we know Christ had that ability, but he did not exercise his ability that way. Because, it's clear in Scripture, he chose to use the instrumentality of means. So, he actually only heals those people which he encounters in his ministry or where loving people bring them to Jesus. He doesn't heal beyond that. So the ordinary means of the people he encounters in terms of his ministry travels, he heals them. And those people who who hear about Jesus and bring them to Jesus, he heals them. So he heals through the ordinary means of what we would call personal contact. Consider the fact that Jesus could cause every single one of us to grow into the likeness, his own likeness, instantly. By by the simple exertion of his sovereign will. He He could easily just say, today, Jeff, image of Christ. And Jeff would be Wow. (laughs) Martha would be happy. (laughs) But that's not the way Jesus works. Instead, he has chosen to grow us spiritually through what we commonly call the ordinary means of grace. He causes us to grow through the Word of God when we read it when we meditate upon it, when we memorize it, when we obey it, when we hear it when we hear it preached. He causes us to grow through through prayer as, as people pray for us, as we ourselves pray. We we grow more into the image of Christ. He uses the ordinary means of, of our worship and the sacraments, and the singing of praises, and the giving of tithes and offerings, and the confessing of our sin, and then hearing the benediction. All of these ways are ways in which Christ causes us to grow. And then there are the afflictions of life by which we find ourselves humbled in the circumstances that we cannot control, cannot better, and we find ourselves necessarily leaning more into Jesus and praying to Him, Lord Christ, help me. I need more grace. I need more strength. I need stronger desires to love you and to serve you. And I don't like what's happened to, to me. Please, if you would, take it away. But if you will not, give me the grace and strength to handle it. All of these are ordinary by which we grow. This is the regular pattern. Christ uses the regular and ordinary means in his ministry of grace to enable us to grow. And that's why we have these repeated lessons where Mark is showing through these stories of Jesus that Jesus healed this way and he did it this again and again and again. But then we come to the fourth element in the story. And there's a break in the pattern. And we see this in verses 23 to 25. 
In those verses, we read that when Jesus took the blind man outside of the, va- the village, when he laid his hands upon him, into verse 23, he says, Do you see anything? And, and, the, and the man looks up, and he says, I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. Which, by the way, indicates he wasn't born blind, but he had acquired this blindness in his life somehow, some way. And then Jesus lays hands upon him again. And we're told that now the miracle of healing becomes complete. He sees clearly. His eyesight is fully restored. Change in pattern. This healing does not happen instantly. There are two stages before this healing is complete. And so the central question of the story is, why not instantly? Why didn't Jesus heal instantaneously? Why didn't this man receive everything that he hoped for at the moment that Jesus spat on his eyes and and, and touched him? Well, the answer is not too difficult to discover, although, as we've mentioned before, Jesus does not explain himself here. When we look over this passage, five verses, reference to seeing nine times, nine references to sight in these five verses, which is clearly one of the ways in which we discern what's the point of a passage. It's the repetition of certain ideas. Remember in the previous story, the story just before this, what was the problem with the disciples? Jesus said to them, having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, you do not perceive. And the problem with the disciples is that they weren't seeing, they weren't perceiving, they were not understanding what Jesus was doing. And so now Jesus does a miracle the first stage of the miracle, the man sees, but he doesn't see clearly. Is there something significant about that? The disciples were distinguished from everyone else. Certainly they were distinguished from the Pharisees because the disciples could see Jesus as a man sent from God. They could see this, and they could see that clearly, but could they see everything clearly? No. And so Jesus does a second healing, a second act of putting his hands upon the man, using the same means but applying the means again, and the man sees everything clearly. And this is a kind of turning point in the Gospel of Mark because from here on out, the teaching of Jesus about himself is going to get far more particular and far more oriented toward the cross that Jesus must endure for our salvation. And it's, as it were, a living parable Applied to the disciples, you see, but you do not see. More spiritual work must take place in you until you can see as you very much need to see in order to be the apostles who are going to be the foundation of the church. This also has such a very necessary lesson for the Christian life. Our spiritual growth has never been a matter of instantaneous leaps forward. And I say that because in the history of the church, in the history of Protestantism in particular, uh, we've had 
uh, a form of Bible teaching that is maintained that your Christian life begins, but it's ultimately going to go nowhere until this tremendously powerful second work of grace is visited upon you. Uh, those who have a Pentecostal background recognize that, yeah, that, that second great work of grace is, is the baptism of the Spirit and you begin to speak in tongues. Uh, that's when you really start growing. If you're out of the charismatic movement, you realize it's, it's, it's when, again, the baptism of the Holy Spirit hits you and you begin to exercise wonderful spiritual gifts. If you come out of a traditional Wesleyan-Arminian approach to Christianity, it's called uh, variously the second blessing. And the idea is that your Christian life is only going to go so far, mostly out of the flesh, until God does a second work of blessing upon your life in which you will be entirely sanctified, freed from sin, and so forth. And you may say, really, they teach that? Well, let me read to you from one of the sister denominations that came out of Methodism. Methodism began to uh, leave its call to holiness. Uh, the, the, the Nazarene church rose up to continue the Wesleyan-Arminian tradition. So let me read a statement out of their official doctrine. God, who is holy, caused us to a life of holiness. Absolutely true. If you're a Christian and you don't think God has called you to holiness, then I'm going to say you are probably not a Christian. We know as Christians, we are called to holiness. But then it goes on to say, we believe that the Holy Spirit seeks to do a second work of grace in us. Called various by various terms, entire sanctification or baptism of the Holy Spirit, cleansing us from all sin, renewing us in the image of God, empowering us to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves, and producing in us the character of Christ. Now understand, they're not talking about sanctification that takes years and years and years. They're talking about something that can be a day and night difference. That's not the lesson of this passage. And it's not the lesson of the passages that we've been looking at. The Apostle Peter, through Mark, isn't teaching that you can be sanctified instantaneously and then you have this great leap forward to resemble the Lord Jesus. His whole point as the Apostle of Reminders is that you have to be reminded again and again and again, of the spiritual lessons which you have learned. You must be reminded again of not just what you've learned, but you must be reminded again to keep applying them to your lives. Because it's only in the repetition of the ordinary means of grace that we grow as we are called to grow. Again and again. Why did Jesus not heal instantaneously in this situation? To show us that the pattern of grace is the application of the means of grace again and again and again. Now, wrap up with the fifth element, verse 26. 
here we have a further pattern repeated. Jesus sends the man home, tells him not to go back to the village. The lesson here, when Christ does his great work in us, it is not to promote our reputation among others. It is that we might meditate upon grace, God's grace and goodness to us. So when the great slave trader turned pastor, John Newton, was once spoken to after one of his sermons and ministry times this way. Pastor Newton, you were such a great man. God has done such a great work through you. That was such a great message. He said, you needn't tell me that. The devil has already told me. And his point was this. To applaud the work of men, even godly men, is to take the focus off of Jesus and his glory. It is why most of us in the Reformed tradition will not abide clapping in church. will not abide clapping in church. Oh, not clapping when we're singing, but when someone has spoken or when someone has sung, clapping in response to what they've done. We're telling that person how great he or she is. That's the devil's work. We need to be saying, God, if you have done anything through me, it is to your glory. Let all the recognition be to you. Final lesson. So, as we continue to be Christians who who want to, to know what God is telling us through the Gospel of Mark, we hear lessons again and again and again. Note what Jesus does and, and do what we can to emulate Jesus. Every person he cared about, every person he continues to care about, he gives them his full attention. And when God does something great in us, it's not for the promotion of our reputations. It's for the elevation of his glory. To that we all must ultimately desire. Let's pray. Father, uh, give us, we pray, hearts that will learn these lessons, hearts that will desire again and again to be taught of your Spirit, the things which you teach us in your Word, and to be willing to repeat lessons when we don't quite get them and to cover them again, and to be thankful for your ordinary means of grace, So keep us faithful then in coming to church, sitting under your word. Keep us faithful to our own personal times of study, reading your word and prayer. Keep us faithful to, during our times of affliction, to turn our hearts to you, asking you to give us grace to manage these things that are so difficult at times. And in all of this, Lord, as you do your work in us, may the glory and honor and reputation be unto Jesus and not ourselves. May we live like John the Baptist, 
who said concerning Jesus, He must become greater and I must become lesser. May we all be like that. In Jesus' name, amen.